you want to make sure you're thinking about those when you're underwriting the deal, or I guess after you decided if you're going to submit an offer after underwriting, so that you make sure you're doing this upfront and not doing it best and final or kind of waiting until the end and holding all of your cards to your chest. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us, and he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, In addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. When we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we built a relationship with him and Eastern Union funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team both Eastern Union and Arbor on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record, quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got, and assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, all you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, but besides that, you know the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And his phone number, 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And today... We're doing follow along Friday and more relevant to you. We are going to give you the five factors that you should be aware of when you're in a competitive bid situation, when you're bidding on a deal and you have essentially five categories that you should keep in mind. And we'll give you some tips for those categories for how to win the deal without breaking your budget. That's one conversation that we'll have. And then another conversation that we'll have is three things to look out for whenever you're reviewing the broker's comps on a deal. You should always do your own comp analysis when you're looking at a deal. But then there are three things in particular 
that you might not be looking at that you definitely want to be looking at. So we're going to talk about that too. And all of this is coming from the book that is going to be published on Tuesday of next week, Best Ever Apartment Syndication book that is 450. Is it, did it make 50? I'm trying to think. 436, right? How many pages is that? I think overall, including the introduction material, it's 456 pages. 56, 56. It's a monstrosity. It is the how-to book for raising money and buying apartment communities. If you haven't pre-ordered it yet, then go pre-order it by going to apartmentsyndicationbook.com. That way you get some free goodies that we're giving away along with the book whenever you purchase it. Mm -hmm. Those are available when you pre-order or during the first week of purchase, apartmentsyndicationbook.com. So the previous two Fridays we have discussed, one was experience, how to get experience, knowledge, how to align yourself with experienced people and how to acquire the knowledge and what knowledge you need to have and also the importance of brand building and thought leadership. That was experience two Fridays ago. And then last Friday, we talked about money, need money to do these deals. So you can go listen to last Friday's episode if you want to learn about how to build a roster full of private investors who you attract into your deals. And then today, we're going to be talking about what I mentioned earlier, which is related to the actual deal itself. So Theo, let's... Uh, oh, and Theo Hicks, how you doing? I'm doing great, Joe. How you doing? <laughs> I was just so excited about that. I just jumped right in. I didn't even say hi to you, although I said hi to you when we talked before we started recording. But officially, hello, and how do you want to approach this? So as you mentioned, we're going to have a part three today of the book, which is all about finding, underwriting, and sending offers on your deals. So after you've got the experience and the private money and the passive money lined up, next step is start looking for deals. So in this particular episode, we're going to focus on finding the deals and the underwriting. And for the finding the deals, one of the things that you're going to do after you find them, underwrite them, and submit an offer. And sometimes, especially in today's market, you're likely going to be in a competitive offer situation. So you want to approach your offer accordingly. And most people who haven't done a deal before probably think that the only fact that matters is the price. But in reality, that's just one of the five factors that a seller is going to take into account when reviewing the offers and selecting the best one. So of yep. course, one of them is going to be price. So if you have the lowest price, all things equal, if you have the lowest price, it's not going to look as good as the highest price. So when you're submitting an offer, especially in these competitive offer situations, you want to make sure that you're submitting the highest price that you can for the deal to make sense from a return perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that just because you offer the highest price, you're going to win because the other four factors are going to be taken into account. But the price is obviously going to be one thing the seller is going to look at. I know firsthand for a fact that a deal that we have under contract right now we offered $400,000 less than the other group and we got awarded the deal. So we were not highest on the price. We we're almost half a million dollars below what the highest offer was on the price, but we got awarded the deal and we got awarded the deal because of our track record and some of these other factors that 
will go into. And this gives hope for single family investors who are wondering about the learning curve and the type of experiences they've had in single family and how that translates into multifamily. Well, in single family, you do get awarded deals if you show strength from a closing standpoint. If you go in with a lower offer, but the seller really needs to get out of their property, then it's possible that you'll get awarded the offer versus someone who has not as proven of a track record as you. And for all the single family home investors who have 10 plus deals under their belt, I know you know what I'm talking about. You get awarded deals based on other things than price. Price is certainly a determining factor and it depends on the seller how much of a determining factor that is, but it's not the only factor. Exactly. And that naturally transitions to number two, which are the terms. So at the end of the day, you have to know what the seller wants. Do they want to exit as quickly as possible? Do they want a non-refundable deposit? Would that something that would sway them to your direction? All cash offers, so if they want to close faster and you submit an all cash offer, they'll have to wait for you to go through all the financing process and they don't have to worry about the deal not being qualified by the lender. They'll know that, okay, I don't have to worry about the financing aspect because this person's paying all cash. Also, something else that, that you could do for the terms, if they want to close quickly, is you can waive certain due diligence items. I'm not saying you should do this. They're just all options that you can do. You always want to inspect the property. But let's say, for example, let's say your team member or your partner is an, a commercial real estate contractor who's been doing this for 20 plus years. Instead of having a professional inspector go in there, if you're doing an all cash offer, you can just have your contractor look at it instead. Of course, if you're doing financing, you're going to need to get an inspection and do certain due diligence items in order to qualify for the loan. But essentially, you want to just take a look at your purchase sale agreement, go through all the terms and see what you can do to make it more competitive, whether it be non-refundable deposit, deposit, higher earnest deposit, shortening the closing period, all cash offer, things like that. Because again, if the seller wants to, to close faster or have more confidence in your ability to close, you can tweak the terms to fulfill that need for them. One thing you could also do to build on what you said, it's not in addition to, but it's just a bullet point underneath with a non-refundable earnest money deposit. What you could do is instead of having that be held with the title company, if you were to be so bold, you could have that released directly or immediately to the seller. That way, they know that they have that money in their bank account because what typically happens, even if it's non-refundable, it's going to be with the title company. And before the title company releases it, they're going to need to have the okay from both sides. And if your non-refundable money is with the title company, then something were to come up. Maybe the seller is dishonest about something or the environmental didn't come back clean, or title didn't come back clean. Something that would trigger an issue that they weren't being honest about whatever that deal point was, then what typically happens is you go to court if you can't agree that, hey, you weren't being honest with me, so yeah, it was non-refundable, but you misrepresented X, Y, Z. And then the seller will get whatever gets agreed upon through litigation. Mm-hmm. And the seller doesn't want to do that, clearly. So a display of strength would be to 
have that money released from the title company to the seller mm-hmm. maybe after a week or something. Just adding in that extra talking point or that contract point. And that will definitely give your non-refundable deposit some extra credibility compared to someone else who's doing non-refundable for the same amount of money. So you do have your offer stand out. Now, I'm not suggesting anyone do this, by the way. I'm simply saying what is possible and you decide if that is the right approach for the particular deal that you're doing. We have had buyers release their non-refundable earnest money to us on transactions to show, hey, we're going to be closing on the deal that we're buying from you guys. And here's our non-refundable earnest money. Now it's in your bank account versus it's with a third party. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine them having cash in hand being uh, much stronger than them having to wait to get that money until close. For those first two, the price and the term, these are things you want to think about when you're submitting your actual letter of intent so that your first offer to the seller is usually going to be an LOI letter of intent, which is like a non-binding agreement, just setting up expectations for the price and terms. So you're going to be able to put your price and your terms on there. So all those things we just talked about, you want to make sure you're thinking about those when you're underwriting the deal, or I guess after you decided that you're going to submit an offer after underwriting, so that you make sure you're doing this upfront and not doing it best and final or kind of waiting until the end and holding all of your cards to your chest. Especially a competitive situation, of course. So number three is going to be relationships. So everyone knows how important relationships are in real estate. And I think we might've talked about this last week, but when you're looking for a real estate broker, you shouldn't expect them to send you their best off-market deals after knowing them for a week. Once you know them for a while and you've proven that you're able to close on deals, you'll start getting better and better deals from them. So the same thing works for when you're actually submitting offers. If you know the listing broker, if you know the owner, they're going to have an advantage over someone that they don't know. Because as Joe mentioned in the intro, a track record is going to be very important. And if they know you and they know your track record, you're going to have an advantage over someone that they don't know at all. They've just met if you're offering the exact same. So the question you might be asking is, okay, what if I just am going in cold? Yeah, it's a deal I found on LoopNet or it's a deal that I am making an offer on because it's just an on-market deal. Mm-hmm. One tip for you in that case is to ask the listing broker if he or she has any preferred mortgage brokers for this transaction. Because at least then you're aligning yourself with someone who the listing broker knows well mm-hmm. and would maybe has some sort of agreement, side agreement, who knows what they're doing behind the scenes. But at least you're going into it with a familiar ally of the listing broker. Exactly. And anyone can do that. All you gotta do is ask. Now you don't necessarily have to go with that mortgage broker, but if you're open to seeing different terms and if the mortgage broker who the listing broker is recommending is similar or better than the other options you've got, then it's a no brainer. Mm -hmm. You, You go with that and it will likely help you get awarded the deal if all other things are equal. Exactly. On that same note, kind of back to building a relationship, it's not as good as what you just said, but it's kind of a, a tier below. But if you're wanting to build a relationship with a specific real estate broker and you find like an off-market deal or whatever, 
and you obviously they're not going to be involved in the process, you can use their mortgage broker or their property management company if they have all that included in their company just to kind of push that relationship in the positive direction. So number four, this is one that you might not even have thought about, but your team structure. Some owners, for example, won't sell to a general partner that doesn't have their own in-house property management company, for example. So if you have a third-party property management company, they might not sell to you or it might not be as competitive as if you had your own in-house company because it's not true. It might be true, but it also might be false. But the perception is that your company is not as integrated. Because remember, at the end of the day, they want to know that you are credible and that you are able to close on a deal. And so if you have an integrated company, it kind of proves that you have that track record. Because I remember a long time ago, we talked about when you should bring on an in-house management company. And it's once you have a large enough portfolio for it to make financial sense. So it's perceived that you're big enough that you have your in-house property management company. Another example, and I believe we talked about this last week about with the alignment of interests, is also what other roles are your team members playing in the deal? So do you just have a property management company managing the property and that's it? Or are they investors in the deal? Do they have equity in the deal? Have they brought on their own investors? Are they the loan guarantor? Who's your loan guarantor? Is it some other local owner who has experience? Or are you just doing all this yourself? All those things are going to come up during the best and final seller call if you get to that point. They're going to ask you about your team structure. Who's a management company? Are they third party or in-house? Who's your lender? If you have a consultant or some sort of mentor or you're partnering with a local owner, you would have mentioned that. So your entire team structure is something that could be a huge selling point for the deal, especially when you're just starting off fresh and don't have any experience. We've lost out on a deal because we have a third-party management company. The seller went with another group that had similar terms that sounded like, I don't know for certain, but they said that since we did not have an in-house management company, that they felt more comfortable with the company Mm -hmm. that did. That is not typical, but it did happen. And that's why we included this in these factors. Also thinking about team structure, where you're getting your equity, they're team members too. So the seller is certainly going to be qualifying you and your equity partner or partners Mm -hmm. asking you, okay, have your equity partners reviewed the deal? Have they visited the property? Do they need to visit the property? If they don't work out, Where are you going to get the equity? Have you ever partnered with those equity partners on previous deals? If so, how many? Those are all the questions that you should be prepared to answer. And then some in the book, we have all the questions. Well, not all. I guess we'd never technically be able to have all people come up with random stuff. But most of the questions you should be prepared to answer during the conversation with the broker and then also on the best and final call with the seller. Number five, the last factor is your underwriting. So essentially, are you able to identify extra value-add opportunities, which are things that will either increase the revenue or decrease the expenses? So are you able to identify extra value-add opportunities that other people that are submitting offers are not finding? Because at the end of the day, if you can have a higher NOI, which means you have a lower expense or a higher income, then you could submit a higher offer. So this kind of ties back into the price, but the better you get at underwriting, the better you get identifying value-add opportunities on properties, and the better team members you have that could do that as well, then the higher offers you're going to be able to submit. And again, since 
price is one of the factors, you become an underwriting wizard and a wizard at identifying these opportunities, then you're going to be able to essentially win. If you're good enough at this, you could win almost every deal because you're going to be able to submit a price that's so much higher than everyone else's because you know you're going to recapture all of that after you've implemented your business plan. So what's an example, Theo? Instead of doing coin operating laundry in the laundry facility, you put laundry into the actual units and raise the rents on each individual unit. We actually have a list of, I think it's 27 ways to add value to apartment communities. So if you use Google Joe Fairless, 27 ways to add value, you'll find that blog post. And those two things that I mentioned, the washer and dryer and the carports are on there, but it's also a list of 25 other ways to add value. And essentially you just want to just be creative with it. Another example, I can't remember who you interviewed, but they would increase their advertising budget a little bit because they would host these resident appreciation parties constantly with raffles and it was very, very engaging. And so because of that, they were always at like 99% occupancy. So instead of underwriting a 5 to 8% vacancy rate, they could underwrite a 1% vacancy rate. I'm not saying that you should do this because you get to prove that you could do this first, but they've proven that they can maintain essentially 100% economic occupancy by bumping up their advertising budget. So when that happens, when you underwrite and you're 4 to 6% extra revenue each month, you can submit a much higher offer. So these are kind of all things to keep in mind. And as you're listening to podcasts, you can even listen to a podcast by someone who's not an apartment investor and, and find an idea of value add opportunity, just being creative. And of course, it takes time as well. When I was getting started, I read a book by Dolph DeRuz called Commercial Real Estate Investing. Dolph DeRuz, and he talks about all sorts of different ways to add value, not just to apartment buildings, but to commercial real estate in general. So before we move on, just to summarize, the five factors that will win or result in you winning or losing a deal in a competitive offer situation is the price, the terms, your relationships with the seller and or listing broker, how you've structured your team and how you communicate that, as well as your underwriting skills. So those are the five factors to keep in mind when you're submitting offer in competitive offer situations. So the second thing you wanted to talk about has to do with the actual underwriting process. So when you're underwriting your deals, and let's say it's an on-market apartment deal, there will be an offering memorandum, which is a listing broker's sales package. I'm sure everyone who's looked at apartment deals before has seen one of these. And it essentially summarizes the offering and talks about the, the property description and the market. But then it also has a pro forma section where they talk about their expected projections for the property from a financial perspective. And also they'll have their rental comps, which is what they use to calculate the new rents once the renovations are completed or once they're raised to market rents. So these are three things to look for when you're reviewing the rental comps from the listing broker. So as Joe mentioned before, you want to do your own comps, but you can technically use theirs as long as you address these three questions first and make sure that the answer is correct and they're not trying to pull a fast one out of you. So question number one, you want to ask yourself is how far are these comps from the subject property? So the mileage is important because if they're 40 miles away and it's in a massive market, then probably not going to be a good comp. But more importantly, you want to make sure that the subject property and the comp property are located in like areas. So if you live anywhere near a downtown area, you know that 
one street could be an A and the two blocks over could be a D area. So technically, if you look at the comp map and be like, oh, well, these properties are one mile apart, so I don't need to investigate further. But if you end up investigating further, you realize that one property is right next to a college and the other property has a really, really high crime rating. So yeah, they're close, but they're not actually comps because those neighborhoods are completely different, which means that the demographic is going to be completely different. That's one question is looking at the distance between the two properties and making sure the actual neighborhoods line up. Number two, and I know Joe's mentioned this before, but this is a big one, which is when was the property renovated? So if you're doing a value add deal and you are going to base your rent premiums on the proven rents they've received by doing similar updates to the interiors, you want to make sure that those were number one, done recently. So in the past year, but two, make sure that they've actually done enough. They've done it at a rate similar to how quickly you're going to renovate them. So for example, a comp that has renovated five units in the past two years is a lot different than a comp that's renovated five units in the past two months. So if they've renovated five units in the past two months, then you can expect to receive similar rental premiums. But if it's been two years ago, who knows what the actual rent premiums are going to be And you can't necessarily rely on that data because it didn't happen fast enough. Unless, of course, you plan on renovating five and two years. And these two points came from a deal that we were looking at. The deal was in Anderson, which is a suburb of Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And they showed rent comps that were in areas called Norwood, which is not Anderson. And it's completely different and far away, relatively speaking. And then the renovations look good, but they've been doing them over a two-year time frame. And that's not the time frame that we do renovations. We want all the renovations done within 12 to 16, 18 months. So we want all of them done. They'd only done, I think, 10% within two years. Mm -hmm. But we want all of them done definitely within two years. And as a result, that doesn't really give proof of what the market can command because it's just over too much of a time frame. There's all sorts of different variables that could have happened. They could have offered concessions and then now the concessions is burned off. They could have just been turned down by 75 people and then the 78th person said, yeah, I'll I'll buy it because they had some weird circumstance or they had to move in quickly and they had the ability to pay a little bit more. So you want to see more of a pattern. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where the two came from, from an actual deal. And then the third one is you want to ask yourself, do the property operations match? So what I mean by property operations, one example would be the utilities. So who pays for water? Who pays for electric? Who pays for gas? If the owner of a subject property, the owner pays for just water and you plan on just paying for water as well and the residents pay for their own electric and or gas. And then you look at the rental comps and you have a rental comp where the owner pays for everything, then those rents are going to be completely different because if you're including the utilities in the rent, it's going to be higher. So if you're listing a unit for rent and saying all utilities included, not only is someone going to rent that unit faster, but you're going to be able to demand a higher rate because of the cost savings associated with saving 50 to 100 bucks per month on utilities. Another example from a property operations perspective is move-in specials. So when you're doing a rental comp analysis and you're calling up or visiting these properties in person, you want to ask 
what type of concessions they're offering. Because if their rents are 50 bucks higher than all the other rental comps in the area, and you call them up and they say, oh yeah, we're offering first month rent free, then in reality, it's not actually $50 higher. It's actually lower because they're giving away free rent. So you're going to be able to demand a higher rent if you're giving away first month's rent free, reduced security, deposit, referral fees, things like that. So you make sure that the types of concessions that are offered are similar at both properties. They don't, they don't have to be the exact, but kind of just use common sense. And if one property hasn't some crazy rent special and yours doesn't, then probably should pass on that rental cap and find another one. But use that information as something you want to dig into more because if someone's doing major concessions in your submarket, then that could be a red flag. Exactly. One other thing I have noticed on the 30 to 100 units that brokers will be more inclined to put all bills paid properties into the rent comps when comparing if their property is not all bills paid. Whereas 100 plus units, you might have a more sophisticated buyer. I haven't seen any brokers put all bills paid properties in their rent comps if their subject property was not all bills paid. But I have seen it multiple times with 30 to 100 units. So if you're buying in the 30 to 100 or 20 to 100 units, then be on the lookout for that. Just make sure you're comparing apples to apples because as Theo said, all bills pay properties, rent per square foot, and overall rent will be through the roof compared to non-all bills pay property. So in the book, when we go over the rental comps, you know, we go over a lot more than this. We just show you exactly how to do rental comp investigation online, how to do it over the phone, and how to do it in, in person to kind of cover all of your bases. So just to summarize quickly, the three things to look out for when you're reviewing the broker's rental comps is number one, look at the distance between the subject property and the rental comp and making sure that they're in like areas, like neighborhoods. Number two is looking at the renovation timeline and making sure that the renovation timeline that they've used is comparable to how quickly you're going to do your renovations. And then finally, making sure that the property operations are similar as well. So that wraps up part three of the deal. Next week, we're going to talk about the execution. So once you've submitted an offer on a deal, now it's time to actually start executing your business plan, which starts with due diligence and then closing and then your asset management responsibility. So we'll be talking about a couple of topics as it relates to those. I'm really excited for this book to be coming out next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am too. I'm excited for how helpful it will be. And quite frankly, for us just to be done with it. <laughs> yeah, This has been a year in the making and it's been a labor of love for both of us. But now it's time to give birth and exactly. you know, kind of let, let the baby do its thing. <laughs> Nothing else in the marketplace is out there that addresses the how-to guide for apartment syndication. So go to apartmentsyndicationbook.com and make sure you get the free goodies too because we've got a bunch of good stuff that will be helpful for you when you pre-order or order during the first week, which by the first week, that deadline is the 18th, I I believe the 18th. Yeah. By September 18th, you'll be eligible for all the free goodies. If you go to apartmentsyndicationbook.com and you got to email the receipt to info at joefairless.com. All right. Well, to wrap up, make sure you go to the best ever community on Facebook. That's besteverecommunity.com. Each week we post a question of the week and we use your responses to create a blog post. This week's question is, what is your greatest strength? 
and how has it helped you as a real estate investor? So what are you really good at and how has it been beneficial to your real estate investing career? What's yours? Well, I was thinking about that and I would say now, I'm not sure what the word would be, but I'll just say my biggest strength is I don't panic anymore. Mm-hmm. So if anything goes wrong, instead of having that moment of like, oh my God, the world's ending, I'll just be like, all right, it is what it is. And then I'll, with a clear mind, come up with a solution quickly rather than thinking about it constantly and letting it affect other aspects of my life. So kind of just, I guess a better term would be compartmentalize. So I can not think about it. And then once something comes up that I need to do it, I can turn everything else off, focus on that and do it. And once it's done, I can turn that back off and go back to doing whatever else is I'm doing instead of letting it stress me out. I would say that this is a newer ability. I did not have this when I first started off at all. <laughs> I, it was the exact opposite. <laughs> I was probably having a minor stroke for a year straight. <laughs> it is quite the skill set to be able to compartmentalize so that you are focusing on one thing and then knocking that out because there's incredible power in the focus. That's for sure. And it's something more and more people lack because of social media and just the way we operate with our smartphones and being pulled in a lot of different directions is the lack of focus. But when we do have focus towards something, it's very, very powerful. I would say mine is resourcefulness. Mm -hmm. I believe that whatever comes across my way, I'll find a solution. And sometimes it's not the solution that is most desirable but I'm incredibly resourceful and that has served me well as an entrepreneur. I make things happen. And Mm -hmm. that's just something I've always had and applying it to what we do has been very beneficial. I would agree. You are very resourceful. (laughs) All right. And then lastly, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review for the opportunity to be the review of the week. This week's review is from Legacy Driven. Title of the review is Be a Sponge. And the content of the review was, I say be a sponge because I've listened to this podcast for about six months and the knowledge I've gained is hard to believe. Since listening, I've rented my home that I was going to sell and I'm getting positive cash flow too. I'm excited about acquiring more units and acquiring more knowledge with Joe along the way. And that's great. Congrats on renting that house out and getting some cash flow. What a huge difference that will be that will have a ripple effect throw a stone in a pond and see the ripples. Those ripples are all the positive actions that will take place as a result of you renting your place out and cash flowing versus buying a place and quote unquote upgrading into a bigger and better place. But instead you did the right thing in my opinion, based on me not knowing you, but generally speaking, you did the right thing to cash flow and then congrats on your future goals and looking forward to hearing more about how you do. So thank you everyone for hanging out with us. I am confident that this was valuable. If you're raising money, buying apartments, or just an investor in general who's looking to enter into any of these areas. And if not, then why are you still listening right now? You should have turned it off a long time ago. I sincerely appreciate the review by Legacy Driven. Ooh, I like powerful, powerful name too. So Legacy Driven, thank you for that review. And everyone else, please leave a review in iTunes. Help us continue to have high quality for you and everyone else. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212 
8979875 that's 2128979875 his email is m b e l s k y at easterneq.com do you buy property worth over a million dollars and are you missing huge income tax benefits cost segregation is one of the methods i use myself to lower taxes on our properties and increase the cash flow call yona wise with Madison Specs at 732-333-1477.